0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Ben Green, author of the book, Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First
1: Civil Rights Martyr. I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. I think it was because he had registered 100,000 black voters. Using
0: 2020 hindsight, we'll look at the 20th years of previous centuries in Florida.
2: By about 1720, you begin to see the rise of what we would later call the Seminole and Lower Creek tribes that would become the Seminole and Miccosukee tribes of Florida. And we'll talk about
0: Miami photographer Andy Sweet. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth's voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies.
0: On Christmas freedom night, 1951, dies, a bomb exploded said, under the home of never educator never and activist dies. Harry T. Moore. No the home was in Mims, Florida, just north of Titusville and east of Orlando. Both Moore and his wife Harriet died from injuries sustained in the blast. The book before his time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, is being published in a new edition with updated material. Ben Green is author of this comprehensive biography.
1: Harry Moore grew up in a little place called Halston, uh, outside of Live Oak, which is just really a hole in the wall. I mean, there's just nothing there, no stop sign, traffic light. Um, His father died when he was young, Uh, his father worked on the railroads taking care of the big water tanks for the steam engines, and his mother worked in the cotton fields and then she had a little store, basically just a little shack where she sold candy and soda pops and goods like that.
0: After the death of Harry's father, the young boy was sent to live with three aunts in Jacksonville, Florida. All three were well-educated, professional women.
1: I think that was the other part that it he got out of the country and not just living with these three women who were talking politics and literature and world events, but the black community in Jacksonville was vibrant and alive with culture and black owned businesses. So I really think it, it really just opened up the world to him.
0: Harry T. Moore left Jacksonville to become a teacher. He made his way to Brevard County in 1925 to teach at the Coco Colored School and was later promoted to principal of the Titusville Negro School.
1: One of the things uh, about that I don't think many people realize is even as late as the 1930s, only half of the counties in Florida had a black high school. So if you wanted to go to beyond elementary school uh, to school, often you had to go, out of town, you had to go away. So Harry left Jacksonville and actually went back to Live Oak and uh, went to Florida Memorial College, which was located there. It was a college, but also had a high school program. So he graduated in 1925 with a normal degree, basically a teaching certificate and got a job in uh, Coco teaching in Brevard County.
0: Soon after arriving in Brevard County, Harry T. Moore met his soulmate, Harriet Vita Sims, The couple was married on Christmas day, 1926.
1: Well, I think that's, it's an interesting thing. They were both very sort of sober, serious people. They met at a card party, at a whist party. And she was an older woman. She was like two years older than he was. But obviously they hit it off. Uh, He used to tell his daughters it was love at first sight. Uh, And so very quickly they got married and her parents sort of gave them a piece of land on their property in this grove, and they built a house and started a family.
0: Education was important in the Moore household. The entire family, Harry, Harriet, and daughters Peaches and Evangeline, would all graduate from Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona. Harry T. Moore's civil rights activities, including an effort to equalize pay for black and white teachers, would lead to him being forced to resign from the Brevard County school system. Ben Green.
1: I think he started his activism with what he knew best, which was education. And so uh, through his involvement with the Florida State Teachers Association, which was the black teacher organization, he filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South to equalize black and white teacher salaries. Black teachers, black principals made basically half what their white counterparts did. Uh, That was also the first time that he interacted with Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Thurgood Marshall had filed the first lawsuit, had won the first lawsuit in the country to equalize black and white teacher salaries. But that was in Maryland, border state, um, and Thurgood was working for the NAACP already. So Harry Moore wrote him a letter and said, we want to move on this uh, in Florida. And it was the first, I think, of many interactions that they had.
0: After losing his teaching job, Harry T. Moore had more time to dedicate to his civil rights activities. He founded the Brevard County branch of the NAACP and created the Progressive Voters League.
1: There were three big things that he worked on. One was teacher salaries, the other would be voter registration, and then the third would be lynchings. But um, really, this is another juncture where he and Thurgood Marshall came together. Uh, In 1941, Thurgood Marshall won the Supreme Court decision, Smith v. Allwright, that outlawed the white primary, um, which was the only election that mattered in the Deep South. Uh, Harry Moore immediately organized the Progressive Voters League in Florida and started registering black Floridians in the Democratic Party.
0: After forming the Brevard County branch of the NAACP, Moore became active with the organization on the state level. The relationship between Moore and the national office was sometimes contentious. Ben Green, author
1: of Before His Time. This is one of the most surprising things I found when I started doing this book. I thought I was writing a book about a NAACP hero, and I found out that actually there was tremendous tension, conflict between Moore and the national office in New York, I think there were two things. One is his political activism, the NAACP was supposed to be nonpartisan, and Harry T. Moore understood that if you're not registered in the Democratic Party in Florida, it does no good. And so he started pushing to register and eventually registered over 100,000 blacks in the Democratic Party. At the same time, most of the black leadership in the NAACP were Republicans because that was the only party they could be part of and they'd sort of get crumbs thrown their way. And so he built, he got some resentment from black leaders in Florida, particularly in big cities because he was a small town guy. But then more so, I think the national office didn't like it because he became a paid executive secretary, and all the money he was raising to pay his own salary could have gone to New York.
0: After Harry T. Moore was killed, the NAACP was quick to claim him as one of their own, even though he had been fired.
1: Yeah, it was really one of the most tragic parts of this, and actually the thing, more than anything, that angered Evangeline Moore is when she found out, when my book came out, that they went out of their way to, they actually fired him before he was killed, And then as soon as he was killed, I described it as they became a cottage industry of raising money off Harry T. Moore and had fundraisers all around the country and in New York and Madison Square Garden, raising money for the NAACP based on his murder.
0: The murders of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have never been solved. It's possible that it was Moore's activities registering African-Americans to vote that led to a bomb being placed under his home. Others believe it was his involvement in the infamous Groveland rape trial that inspired this act of domestic terrorism.
1: I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. I think it was because he had registered 100,000 black voters in the Democratic Party. The night of his death at Christmas dinner at his mother-in-law's house in the Grove, One of the last conversations he had with his best friend from COCO was about how the black vote was gonna determine the outcome of the 1952 governor's race. And he was going around the state saying, the black vote will determine the outcome of every election in Florida. And I think that's why he was killed. I think he was killed to try to suppress black election power and it worked. Black voter registration plummeted after his death. It took another, 10 or 15 years till the Civil Rights Movement to get it back to where it was. So I, I think it was a political assassination more than just a individual hate crime. In
0: 1949, Harry T. Moore was actively involved in seeking justice for four young black men accused of raping a white woman in Groveland. One of the accused was killed by law enforcement before he could be arrested. The other three men were tortured during questioning and had evidence manufactured against them by the notoriously racist Sheriff Willis McCall. The Supreme Court overturned the original convictions and a new trial was scheduled. Ben Green.
1: The day of a hearing for the new trial, Willis McCall and his deputy went to Rayford to pick him up on the way back to Lake County, claimed that the two prisoners jumped him and attacked him and he shot him, he emptied his revolver into him. He killed Sam Shepard, mortally, seriously, critically wounded Walter Irvin, who did survive, and told a completely different story, which is that McCall just yanked him out and started shooting. At that point, Harry T. Moore started calling for McCall to be removed from office, indicted for murder. Uh, He's telegramming and writing letters to the governor, to the U.S. Attorney, to Thurgood Marshall, to the FBI. And then just six weeks later, he was blown up in his house. So the morning after the bombing in Mims, people immediately connected the Groveland case to the Moore bombing. And when the FBI, Agents and the local deputies worked their way through the crowd that had gathered and said, why would anyone have wanted to kill Harry Moore? Everybody immediately said, Groveland.
0: Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were killed 12 years before Medgar Evers, 14 years before Malcolm X, and 17 years before Martin Luther
1: King Jr.,
0: but their legacy has been often overlooked.
1: In a way, I think they're like multiple tragedies. One is they were killed, and the murders have never been solved. And then, in some ways, it's almost equally tragic they were forgotten. Um, I feel like the most poignant epitaph, really, is he was killed three years too early. If he had been killed in 1954, after the Brown decision, he would be Medgar Evers. He was Medgar Evers, he just did it before anybody was paying attention. He would have been in every history book, everybody would have known his name, but it was 1951. There was no civil rights movement. There were no TV cameras filming the dogs attacking children in Birmingham. The murders were not solved. It was really just forgotten about.
0: In recent years, Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have been getting some of the recognition they deserve. An exhibit about the Moores is on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, built on the Moore family homestead in Mims, Florida, has a civil rights museum, a reflecting pool, and a replica of the Moore family home.
1: It's been slow and gradual. There have been other contributions, the documentary film that PBS did, there's a song, you know, The Ballad of Harry T. Moore, you can find that on YouTube, Sweet Honey and the Rock. But I bet you if you went to Brevard County and took a poll, I bet still the majority of the people there don't even know who he is. I mean, the courthouse is named after him. There's the cultural center. I think they still in a way are fighting a losing battle against the tourist industry in Florida and the fact that how many people who moved here just came here in the last four, five, 10 years. I didn't say this, but I think it's valid. He was our Martin Luther King. He was Florida's Martin Luther King, and yet I still think the majority of Floridians don't know who he is, not to mention probably 95% of, at least, of Americans have no idea who he is.
0: Ben Green is author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. A new edition of the book with updated material is being published by the Florida Historical Society Press.
3: And this, he says, I hear him more as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for. Freedom never dies. Freedom never dies. I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for. Freedom
0: never dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: 2020,
0: 2020 Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. Ben, 2020 is upon us, and today we're using our 2020 hindsight
2: to look back at the 20th year of previous centuries in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And that essentially granted women universal suffrage, uh, the right to vote. It was a tremendous piece of legislation, and it wasn't ratified until 1920. So we're celebrating that in, in the year 2020, that 100th anniversary. Florida, unfortunately, at the time did not vote to ratify the amendment. It was a, an uphill battle. There were certainly a number of notable suffragettes who fought for the right to vote in Florida. One in particular was May Mann Jennings, and and May Jennings was Florida's first lady. She was married to the 18th governor of Florida, William Jennings, and she was really a powerful force in Florida politics. Her father was a a politician in state government. Again, she married a man who would later become governor, and she really understood the dynamics of, at least at the state level, how politics worked. She was able to pass a lot of progressive legislation, and a hundred years from 2020, looking back, this was right in the middle of what we term now as the progressive era. So this is a big part of that movement. Now, if we look back a century before then to 1820, it's a very different Florida. In 1820, we're right in the middle of what's known as the Adams-O'Niss Treaty. And that is the piece of legislation that actually transferred the ownership of Florida from Spain to the United States. And in 1821, that was formally ratified by the United States. But in 1820, the US and Spain are dealing with a lot of the legislation and the claims that would kind of culminate into the Adams-Ones Treaty. One of the documents we're looking at here today was actually printed May 12th of 1820, and it is messages from the President of the United States transmitting a report to the Secretary of State on the subject of claims for the citizens of the United States against the spoliations upon their property and commerce by the Spanish. So what does that distill down to? These are the claims that U.S. citizens are petitioning the U.S. government to press the Spanish government to try and compensate them for. Why is this important? One of the common figures we throw out, we say Florida was purchased for $5 million. Well, the way the the legislation actually worked, it was a compilation of claims like these individual claims you see in this publication that culminated to about $5 million worth of claims that were essentially written off by the United States. So these were legal claims against the Spanish crown for loss of property during wartime, seizure of ships and and disruption of commerce during a series of wars from the revolutionary period onward. And they essentially wrote that off and the Spanish then gave the U.S. the Floridas.
0: So these documents cover Florida history as a as a U.S. territory, the creation of Florida as a U.S. territory. But the recorded history of Florida goes all the way back to the 1500s, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. So if we go back another century to 1720, again, a very different time period. In 1720, what we have here to kind of represent that time period is this beautifully done, uh, really, piece of artwork, but it's actually a map. It's a French map that was published in Paris in 1718, and it shows the Louisiana territory, but also includes the Spanish territory of Florida. And what's interesting about this map is that it shows a lot of the trails and roads into the interior, but also highlights a lot of the indigenous communities that were still existing in Florida. Now, by about 1720, this is really where we see the end of a lot of the large indigenous pre-Columbian communities that existed in Florida, and you begin to see the rise of what we would later call the Seminole and and Lower Creek tribes that would become the Seminole and Miccosukee tribes of Florida. They begin moving into Florida and changing the demographics of of the Spanish territory in 1720, or the beginnings of the 18th century. Now, if we go back another century to 1620, this is really really kind of in the the beginnings of the first Spanish period of colonization what i have here to represent that time period is a book it's actually the oldest published work we have in the Florida Historical Society collection. It is a first edition, first printing copy of La Florida del Inca, published in 1605 in Spain, and it's a narrative account of the Hernando de Soto expeditions of 1539-1542. But it was published in Spain, was wildly popular in Europe, and it helped to fuel a lot of the Spanish exploration and expansion into the New World, which included La Florida. And at that time, La Florida covered all of the known southeastern United States. So the de Soto expedition and everything that was uncovered that was considered part of La Florida. And you see a lot of that chronicled in this book. It also marks the beginning of the Franciscan mission system. So there were Jesuit missions that were going throughout the interior of Florida. By the beginning of the 1600s, the Franciscans start moving in and, and establishing inroads into the interior. And they actually build a road that connects St. Augustine to present-day Tallahassee. So you see that happening in 1620. And then at the beginning of the 16th century, this is really kind of rounds out the historic period in the in the. Florida timeline narrative. In 1520, 1521 to be exact, actually, Ponce de Leon embarked on his second expedition and the first attempt, at least for the Spanish, to create a settlement in what is now southwest Florida. It was ultimately unsuccessful. Later on in that decade, in, in 1526, you see Ion come into Florida to establish a colony near present-day South Carolina, but again, that was considered part of La Florida. And what we're looking at here is a 1723 narrative account of that expedition. It's called Barcia's Chronological History of Florida, published in 1723. But the chapter we're looking at here is the second century in the 16th century in 1520. And it actually talks quite a bit about the Lucas Váquez de Ion expedition of 1526, but also includes some information about the Ponce de Leon expedition a few years earlier.
0: Well, great, Ben. That's a, a whirlwind look back at, at Florida history with uh, our 2020 hindsight. Thanks a lot. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see some of the documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The work of Miami photographer Andy Sweet, who was killed in 1982, has been getting attention in the past few years. Holly Baker is manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science and public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society.
4: While at the Miami Book Fair, I spoke to Ellen Sweet Moss, Francesco Cassell, and Stan Hughes about the recently published photography book called Shtetl in the Sun, Andy Sweet's South Beach, 1977-1980. The book is about Miami-born photographer Andy Sweet, who's known for his iconic photographs of Miami in the 1970s and early 1980s. Andy Sweet documented South Beach's vibrant Jewish community capturing their social lives at the beach, at community centers, at parties, and at home. The word shtetl, Yiddish for small town, encapsulates the lively sense of community that existed in Jewish South Beach during the 1970s and 1980s. Francesco Cassell, a photographer and graphic designer, and Brett Sokol, a contributor to the New York Times and the arts editor of Ocean Drive magazine, published Steddle in the Sun. Francesco Cassell told me more about the book and Andy Sweet's photography.
3: Brett Sokol and myself, we started Letter 16 Press with the idea of discovering, rediscovering images trapped on film in particular. Steddle in the Sun, Andy Sweet's South Beach, is the third of our photography books. This book, was done in parallel to a documentary film that was done about andy sweet's project to document the jewish community on south beach over a 10-year period because he and a friend of his gary monroe gary monroe was a black and white photographer they embarked on this 10-year project to document south beach recognizing early on because they had grown up on south beach that it wasn't going to last forever
4: Andy Sweet's photographs focus on Jewish retirees of South Beach, many of them New Yorkers and Holocaust survivors. Andy Sweet's photographs reveal the vibrant spirit of Jewish South Beach with the decaying beauty of the Art Deco district as the backdrop. Andy Sweet knew he was preserving a vanishing time and place, and he wanted to capture it before it was gone.
3: That's a big aspect of Andy's photography is is the architecture, but it's In his case, it's more about the people. And in particular, again, this Jewish community, about 20,000 people on the tip of South Beach living and thriving. And against, you know, popular ideas of old people going into decay is Andy has all these wonderful photos of them living, loving, playing music, being out and, you know, socializing in a way that is gone. But it would be great if younger people looked at it and be like, why don't we all get together on, in Loomis Park and have a jam session with hundreds of us of whatever age. But that's the special thing about Andy's photography again is, is the people.
4: Andy Sweet's life was tragically cut short when he was murdered in his home on October 16th, 1982. He was only 29 years old. After his death, Andy Sweet's negatives were lost by a storage company and his family assumed that his life's work was gone forever. In 2006, Stan Hughes, Andy Sweet's brother in law, found a box of Sweet's faded work prints in a family storage unit. Hughes, who taught animation and Photoshop to college students in Chicago, realized that digital technology could be used to restore the fading photographs back to the original colorful depictions that Andy Sweet intended.
1: The biggest problem was faded color, you know, color photography, especially then whenever Andy was shooting was not stable. Many of them had really gone, they were very brown. And since I knew a thing or two about Photoshop and digital technology, I knew that even the the brown ones, there was enough data there that you could pull up the the colors that had faded. And uh, I was just like, there's no reason to think of his work as lost anymore. I mean, it's like some of it obviously is gone. Anything he didn't make a work print of, it's gonna be gone, but his work is alive. And so, you know, I went and told Ellen and Autry, you know, look, I can scan these and make large prints again, and so that's what I did. You know, I thought it was going to be maybe a year tops, and I don't know, it took me ten years, and I'm still not done, actually.
4: Andy Sweet's sister, Ellen Sweet Moss, works to preserve his photography and to keep his memory alive. She talked to me about her brother and his legacy.
1: Of course, being my brother, I have the utmost respect for the work that he has done and the work that Stan has helped recreate. Andy loved people and he loved color, like balloon colors, and he liked to make people laugh and he was hilarious, he was very funny, just a very kind person.
4: The Andy Sweet Photo Legacy Foundation, established by his family, is dedicated to increasing awareness of his photography and organizing exhibits of his work. The website for the foundation is andysweetphotolegacy.com. The book, Shtetl in the Sun, Andy Sweet's South Beach, 1977 to 1980, is available online at letter16press.com. Andy Sweet's photography has also been featured in a 2018 documentary on his life and work called The Last Resort, currently on Netflix. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can also watch our television series, Florida Frontiers. Production assistance for this program comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a happy new year, I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.